We left off a few evenings ago, trying to emphasize a paradigm where prior to all forms, there's just life. This is it. This is one form. It's been invented. We made it up. Human beings made this up. It's been modified in many ways throughout the centuries. It's come from Asia. Now it's here. It's being modified here. And was emphasizing every activity is practice, and we always hear that, but we have to um, give it artificial a transfusion so that it, it is not a cliche, because it's very easy to say it, but to do it is another matter, because we finally, the mind is so conditioned to think certain forms are really spiritual and I'll put quotes on that as I'm using it, and others are oh, secular and profane. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. I don't think it's the deepest way of looking at it, because finally it's an internal matter. Um, and I, you would encourage to do your yogi job 100%, to really, if that, when you, whatever that is, to give yourself over to it. Not just dutifully, but let's say you don't like it to learn from it, to see your resistances, to see how you suffer, uh, to see how mindfulness is the first casualty as you hurry to get it over with and so forth. We have yogi jobs too. This, I'm doing my yogi job right now. <laughs> Anyone want to trade? You can have it. Come on up here. I'll clean the toilet. Um, and as part of that, uh, I made some strong suggestions as to what I saw going on that uh, was uh, not so good in terms of retreat life, and apparently I offended some people. Uh, sorry about that. I certainly didn't intend to offend anyone, but let me explain what's in back of all that. Um, a retreat such as this needs a strong container. Uh, retreats vary quite a bit. For example, if you certain uh, Japanese Zen, Zen monasteries and Zendos, it's a tight container. That means very rule-governed, very regulated, and not much tolerance, not much wiggle room. And that has some strength to it. It's not just terrible. It's not brutality or anything of that sort. Um, I don't want to go into it. The other extreme would be where you all just you know, just come and sit whenever you feel like it, and then when you're tired of it, just go out and be, be like Times Square on New Year's Eve, people coming and going. Uh, if you feel like chatting, we'll have an area where you can all just chat and laugh. Want to smoke, have a beer. Whatever. <laughs> uh, okay. So the container is subtle here. You could say as soon as we arrive there's a container, the way the, the name the, the metta, loving-kindness, and nature itself kind of enclosing us. Uh, those of us who come from the city where there isn't so much green, uh, you start to enter into an environment that is inclining the mind towards being silent, towards being at peace. It's just external. The real peace, is, of course, is internal, but support helps. And so the container also includes uh, honoring certain forms. 
Um, it's fine, to, let's say, to be drinking your tea, and, uh, but then really drink tea, drink your tea. What I was getting at is uh, people were kind of confused. And some of that I've discovered, uh, there's a bit of a disconnect, is that many of you are here for the first time. And although a prerequisite is that you have had to have done a certain number of retreat uh, days um, or retreats, the word retreat or even meditation can mean such a wide variety of things. So you may not have, or well, you haven't been here, and you may not have uh, participated in a retreat quite like this. So let's say if everyone is reasonably considerate of all of us for each other, we may, and of course silence is essential. And uh, if we try to keep mindfulness alive as much as possible, there's a certain aesthetic element as well. Uh, it's subtle. That is, there's a certain dignity where we practice together in silence, and it's great power. You create a culture of mindfulness where wherever you look, people are really doing their best to stay awake. And so it helps you stay awake. And so that's what I was getting at. That's all. This needs a strong container, and the strong container is, I don't think it's overly regulated. I think it's reasonable. But part of why it needs a strong container is that within the container, I would say that uh, Doug and Matthew and myself, we're very open to improvising as we get to know you, to modifying your practice, uh, to listen and hear all kinds of different ways, uh, different issues that, that you've brought here and how to best address them. Um, this container has to hold perhaps a lot of tears and a lot of laughter. And if it's solid, then we're all supporting each other that way. So that's the intent. Now, if I hurt someone's feelings, it wasn't directed at anyone as an individual, as far as I can tell. I didn't know the people. Uh, so I was trying to, because if you let it slip, and it's very important on the first day to get off on the right foot, so to speak, um, so that the retreat builds and it becomes quite natural that we all honor each other and respect each other. And in, in that sense, as you take care of yourself, you're taking care of the others, as Matthew put it yesterday. Um, okay, am I forgiven? <laughs> I don't feel I have to apologize because I, did, I didn't feel I did anything wrong, but I inadvertently did hurt some feelings, and I, I wasn't trying to do that. Um, also, there was uh, both talks, Doug and Matthew referred to the relative uh, virtues of spontaneous Dharma talks, you know, whether with no notes, just come up, and, or with meticulous notes. I mean, soon there'll be, what are these things with pointers? What are, maybe photographs of what, how to view illustrations of proper walking meditation. I don't know what's next, but. Uh, and then the other extreme, uh, just walk in and and just shoot your mouth off. That's me. Uh, and it sounded perhaps a little bit romantic, like that's really the best way to go. Well, let me puncture that and give you some evidence based on my own experience. Um, when I fir- the first uh, 
the Dharma teacher that I trained with was a Korean Zen master, and he was training me to teach, and he was very different with each person he was doing that for. He said, in my case, I have to give talks uh, like a jazz musician. Uh, there's no notes. And uh, a jazz musician, you, have to get, you get a theme, and then you just blow. So if I get a theme, so I practice that, does it bring up anxiety? Yes, it does. Until little by little, uh, you realize, first of all, he didn't give an inch. I just had to do it. I even had to give a, give a run a retreat with no one there. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, don't you? It was, a, it, it was a, 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 a four or five day of retreat. And it was around Christmas time. And I was... And I was the only Jewish guy in the community. And so no one signed up. So I was scheduled to, to myself. We were, learn, we were being trained to lead these, uh, what you would call, think more of a session. So he said, um, so I said, well, uh, Sung San, I guess uh, we'll just cancel the retreat. And he said, why? Why cancel? I said, there's no one signed up. It's, it's Christmas. Everyone's going home. And he said, no, you give a retreat, 10,000 people, nobody. Same. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I did. I led, I chanted. I did, a, I did 108 prostrations. Bowed to the Buddha. I think even the Buddha went on a Christmas holiday. <laughs> Uh, sat and walked and sat and walked, gave a Dharma talk. I'm serious, to myself. I felt maybe I need help here from a different kind of profession. Some of you here could probably have helped me out. Uh, And then after it was over, it was four days I did this, seriously, and I did it. Uh, I asked him, what's the point? He said, I want to get you free from numbers. We're not doing this. To, it's not a popularity contest. Uh, and little did I know, what the culture is becoming very much that, a consumer culture. And you're the customers, whether you know it or not. And we've got to please you. We've got to make you happy. I shouldn't have spoken to you that other day because you might not come back. Well, he was trying to undercut that into a much more traditional attitude where you care about quality and don't worry about the numbers that will take care of itself. And so you do your best no matter what. Uh, okay, more about uh, qualifying or pu- puncturing a hole in this Mr. Spontaneity stuff as if that's the best way to go. Um, I have been down, I've been scheduled to give a talk, one here, it's also in Cambridge. There actually were two here that I'd like to. And the time came for the talk, and I had nothing to say. Now, you need a theme if you're going to blow. I had no theme. But I just sat there, and in my own anxiety and dis-ease, and then finally the solution became obvious. I talked about anxiety, and a whole Dharma talk came out. So I saved the day. But I also gave a Dharma talk on the Four Noble Truths, and after it was over, I realized I only talked about three. (laughs) 
So I've modified the Buddha's teaching. It's more modern and shorter. <laughs> it's now the three noble truths. Okay. Uh, but the most courageous uh, person I've ever seen with this, I used to teach with a, uh, a gentleman from Germany who was a, a monk in Burma and Thailand for 25 years. Uh, well, it's not a, uh, uh, his name was Bhikkhu Vimalo. And we taught, we would lead these three-week retreats together. And he taught that way, just you, no, no notes. just. A, and one day, we're sitting, both of us sitting up here, and he's quiet, and he's quiet, and he's quiet, and everyone's getting a little bit restless, really a while. And then he looks up and he says, and he wasn't trying to be funny, he says, it doesn't come. I think we walk. He <laughs> <laughs> just walked out. I said, wow, I'm impressed. I could never do that. I'd have to make up something. So here it comes. Okay. You remember the story on the flying Willendas? I left out the part that he died that day. I just told, remember I told you about that he was, it was a very, very stormy day and he was walking the tightrope. I was trying to illustrate. He said, for me, walking the tightrope is all that matters in life. All the rest is just waiting. And I was trying to say, we're trying to make all of life matter, not just the tightrope or, or whatever area of life you really like. And then I, I forgot about it. I dropped it. But I was watching it. Either it was a film or it was actually happening. I think it was actually happening years ago. It's a, it was a family, but he was doing it by himself. And he was warned, please do not go out. It's, it, it was tremendous wind. You could see it. And I was chomping on a, I don't know, a mung bean sprout sandwich, you know, with a tofu salad and avocado in it, just eating it, watching. And I, you see, myself and millions, we saw him blown to his death. Now, the first skill is that ability to walk that tightrope. And I think a third generation... Is it a third generation? So, some, some, some uh, removed from the original is, I think, did it, or else he's in the obituary column, I don't know, while we're here, because we're supposed to do it across Grand Canyon. At any rate, uh, that took samadhi, concentration. How could you do that with, unless you had samadhi? Did he have great wisdom? I don't think so. Uh, certainly not from a Buddhist point of view. The Buddha's teaching on wisdom uh, is defined in a very, very practical way. The Buddha is talking about, he says early on, all I'm teaching is suffering and the end of suffering. So it's conditions of the mind, the way we speak, and actions uh, that are skillful. And what is skillful is something that's beneficial. The certain kinds of mind states and ways in which we use uh, speech and the ways in which we act with one another that are beneficial for ourselves and for others. That's the standard. Unskillful or unwise, synonym for it, uh, is just the opposite. When what you're, the, the content of the mind is destructive, inevitably it comes out in speech and or action, and uh, it results in something that's harmful to you or others. Now, uh, I don't think, if the Buddha were there, I think he would have advised him to not walk on that tightrope. But what it showed is you can get so fixated on a certain goal that you, you lose sight 
unless he just didn't care about life. I don't know. I really don't know. So at any rate, that's the whole story. So now, I forgot about it. I didn't tell you. So let's not get romantic. I'd probably be better off if I had a few notes in front of me, but I don't. Okay. Um, Let me give you one of the most extraordinary teachings that I've received, myself and about 40 other people, in Cambridge just recently. we have these practice groups in Cambridge. This one would meet every Thursday for eight or ten weeks, and then there's a break, and then again three times, three set, you know, about so about roughly almost thirty meetings all told. And we meet for a couple of hours. We sit and then we talk over the Dharma together. And in one of them, there was a blind gentleman who was there with a seeing eye with his dog sitting right in front. Uh, I had known him from Cambridge that well. I'd seen him around, and he was a classical guitarist. And there he was. His dog uh, was there, and I didn't bring up his blindness. We would always have these discussions, and at first he didn't say anything. And then he participated. Uh, uh, He had quite a, a, a strong practice and radiated a very beautiful inner inward sense of uh, peace and clearly had been studying and practicing and was listening and was uh, he enriched the class and I did not refer to his blindness except once indirectly when we were all sitting silently and I and I mentioned that his dog uh, by the way he it's okay but I can talk about it he's he's fine with it I cleared it with him um, I said his dog was the best yogi in the hall. There were about 40 40 people. I was the teacher. And I never brought up his blindness. Next to the last meeting that we had, which was just a little bit before coming here, the week before coming here, on my way there, I just felt, uh, should I take a risk and draw him out and ask him, because he's been practicing for quite a few years, he radiates a certain kind of peace that uh, seems wonderful. And he, his, the way he participates, so graceful and um, astute. And I felt nervous about it. Would that be intrusive? Would that be make him self-conscious? And I went through it. And so we, we, the, the practice group started, and I didn't. It occurred to me now and then, but I didn't. And then I rang the bell. It was over. Our session was over. We were ready to go home. And then I decided, by the way, I can't do it justice, what happened. I really can't. Anyone who was there knows it was an extraordinary 15 minutes or 20 minutes. He gave a teaching. So I approached, I, I brought it up to him. I said, you know, if you're willing to stay a little longer to other people, and he's there in the front with his beautiful dog, um, would you mind, and I feel, I'm, I feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to ask you, I'm risking being intrusive or invading your privacy or putting the spotlight on you, you know, if I inquired on the relationship of practice to the fact, and then I was stumbling around for the right words, uh, what would be, you know, everything has to be politically correct now? Uh, is it visually impaired? And he interrupted me and just blurted out, I'm blind. 
and, and a very and laughing as he said it. He said it's a perfectly good word. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm a blind man. It's okay. Well, I felt the impact on me, and then there was it released in me a sense of freedom. And I felt the liberty to ask more direct questions. Now he could not have been that comfortable had he not done a lot of work on himself. And as the exchange unfolded, he did do a lot of work on himself. Um, we get back to the same thing of relationship that uh, both Doug and Matthew were getting at. That is, because he worked on himself, he enabled me to do what I was doing a little bit better. Uh, I would say I was just a midwife. I, I, I was literally midwife. In other words, the teaching was so exquisite, I, I just asked him some simple questions. And uh, he then just reported it. He was very, very comfortable. Uh, and he said he had had vision for many years. And then in his, I think, mid or late 30s, he knew it was a, it was a genetic in his family. And uh, he knew that he had the possibility of, of going blind. And that's one of the reasons he never married, because he didn't want to have children who might be blind. And then it came. He was blind. So then I felt comfortable enough, because he helped me feel comfortable enough, uh, to, to ask him, well, how was that? And he said, terrible. He said, I, I, I really questioned whether life was worth living. And you know, we all got. There was a huge hush in the hall. Uh, and he said, um, I, so I drew him out. And I said, did you ever, uh, because you already knew what sight was like, were there comparisons? He says, oh, all the time. I kept remembering how I used to be able to see and the kind of life I had. And I kept comparing it to, all of the, to the way it was now. And I said, well, then what happened? He said, I suffered immensely. Until, uh, he said, I was doing a lot of Tibetan practice, and that helped me a lot. A lot of very wonderful and kind teachers helped him. And they did more indirect visualization practices, helped him. And he said, but what helped him most of all was just simple, plain awareness. I said, could you go into more detail about that? And he said, sure. He said, I, by paying attention, I saw that the past was over with, that I kept comparing myself how things were. And every time I did that, I just felt awful. And that's when I felt like taking my life. As I started to see that, that comparing mind withered away, it fell away. And it was still very, very difficult for me learning how to handle a dog and learning how to, my new life. Um, and then we, to make, we, we moved through a lot of details. And he, he did most of the talking. And he said, there was a period when I went through tremendous self-consciousness, being very concerned about that people would, how they were concerned about me, they wouldn't be comfortable with me. And, and until I realized that, uh, what's the point? I let that go. And um, we kept moving. And he kept describing how simple awareness helped him. Now, privately, I drew him out. I asked him to go into more detail. I did some of it in our group. but. People had to go home, and then uh, I did spend a little some time with them alone. He said, sometimes it was so difficult that the way I did it, I'd be aware of, let's say, despair as I breathed in and as I breathed out. I needed the help of the breath uh, to support me. That's the second 
contemplation training that we started two mornings ago. Uh, and he said, other times I didn't. He said, there were some times where I just did not want to look at what was happening at all. I didn't deny it. I knew it was there. And I just would go back to the simple whole body breathing that we did in the first evening. And just breathing in, breathing out, um, I just entered a certain amount of joy and peace and was rejuvenated and refreshed. He said, sometimes that enabled me to then look at what it felt like to be moving into this new life that was so difficult. So to skip to bringing it up to that point, because he was so at home, I said, well, how is it for you now? And he said, oh, well, he said, being blind is not an issue for me. It's just the same problems that, that everyone has, certain frustrations. And I have plenty of friends, good friends. I still play my music. Um, uh, and he said, uh, and I love this, I love my dog. And I don't dwell on what I, what the capacity that I've lost. And, and he said, just simple awareness helped me most of all. This is not a commercial for what we do here. It's because awareness doesn't belong. To, it's not just Buddhist. It's to me, it's intelligent. A human being has the capacity to be awake while, as we live out our life, we can pay attention and see how we're living out our life and learn from what we say, do, and hear, if we're willing to, if we see the urgency of re-educating ourselves, that the way we're living is not working. And I would say we're going to move towards the essence of, uh, is this a religious practice or isn't it? Well, maybe we'll get to that tonight, but let's see. Um, at the end of the group, uh, I can't describe how the hall was. Uh, I don't know if it was a kind of subtle levitation. We were all, um, and I just made a request for myself and for all of us, just think about whatever you, you consider your most serious dukkha, your most serious suffering, discomfort, that you brought to the center, this is in Cambridge, uh, tonight. Put it in the framework of what you just heard uh, Yogi X tell us about his journey and see how it stands up. And then we all left and people gathered around him and they uh, couldn't, he was like a rock star. And anyway, he's more than a rock star. Um, The next week, which was the last week, just before coming up here in the group, I asked him because I thought, well, maybe he really didn't like me asking it and just that he felt coerced because he would be embarrassed to say, no, I don't want to talk about it. And he said, no. He said, I was honored. He said, I felt heard. And what was in that, in parentheses, is I don't usually get heard. And uh, so we all left with just a very, very good feeling. And I thought it would be worth sharing with you. Uh, this practice is practical. It can be applied to even the most dire conditions. And I'm emphasizing the word conditions because I'd like to lead from this into, well, what is it we're really doing here? Okay, I think we've created a decent container. Everyone is behaving nicely. Thank you. (laughs) Well, now and then, you know, but... uh, (laughs) 
We're, all, we're just human. Um, the first awareness pra- uh, practice was to really steady the mind, to kind of enable it to be steady, calm, quiet, clear shamatha practice, where we give exclusive attention to the whole body as it sits and breathes. So many benefits come from it that I don't want to go, you know, that is, we get to know the body in a new way. Internally, we feel all the extraordinary energies that make up a body. They're inside of us. You don't have to name them. You don't, it doesn't matter if you know anatomy or physiology. You can sense what a, a human, your human body is. And the breath conditions the mind and body so that as we're more and more able to be with the breath in a continuous way, you can feel your mind calm down. It's lawful. It's scientific. You can feel the body ease up, calm down a bit. So we're enabling the mind to be fit, a fit instrument to see as clearly as possible into what? Into whatever turns up in our life. Now remember uh, what was emphasized by all of us Allow the breath to happen naturally. Don't try to shape it and make it be attractive if it isn't, even though it would be easier to be mindful of it. If you improved it, don't. Because it's an awareness exercise, not a breath exercise. So the, the fact that the quality of the breathing keeps changing from breath to breath is an advantage. It teaches the mind, the, gives the mind an opportunity, whether we take it or not, it's another matter, an opportunity to learn how to stay awake with a wide variety of situations, breath conditions, qualities of breathing. That's relatively easy, because then we move over, we opened it up two mornings ago. As you sit and breathe, uh, now it's panoramic. You're open to whatever life presents to you. Um, This is what is called anapanasati. Uh, This is a uh, tried-and-true meditation approach that the Buddha taught going towards 3,000 years ago. When people, uh, we may have mentioned this, mention Anapanasati, they only, most people think it's just concentration. It includes that, but it is a complete path. It goes all the way to enlightenment. So it's not uh, just to calm the mind and then you do Vipassana, which is the star of the show. They work together. Uh, The poor uh, flying Walenda, he had the shamatha part down. He must have had extraordinary concentration, at least in that realm. But the, his lack of wisdom cost him his life. I mean, I don't know if he saw it that well. He's not around to tell us. But I, I don't think it was such the wisest thing. He didn't listen to everyone counsel him. This was in South America somewhere. What we're learning is how to bring both together so that the mind, the calm mind, in, in the Chi- one Chinese tradition, they call it serene reflection. It's a very beautiful term. It's the same. Shamatha Vipassana is in pretty much all Buddhist meditations in all the traditions, in one form or another. Sometimes it's taught at the same time. There's a simultaneity of it. But in this approach, first we take it apart, and it has certain advantages uh, for learning. And then we bring that awareness and calm and clarity, and then we sit and breathe, and we're open to what? We don't know. So if fear turns up, whatever turns up. Uh, you heard what, uh, what the story I just told you, that sometimes he had to bring in the breath to help him be with what was there because it was very, very difficult. Sometimes 
he, it was like a tactical retreat in the military. He realized, I am not up to being with fear today or with despair today. I better do something that can uh, gladden the heart. Return, maybe do metta meditation. Uh, and if we're staying within this framework, take up the breathing, the first contemplation. And just breathing in and breathing out, just allow some happiness into the nervous system, the body. Uh, and then perhaps you then feel able to return, just like, I know a military example, I can't help it. Uh, it isn't cowardice if you realize your soldiers are hungry, cold, wet, uh, running out of everything. To a tactical withdrawal is wise. Uh, to be heroic in the, without taking that into account is not, is not good. It's stupid because you, you then lose. And then come back another day when you're more fit and ready to do that. Well, here... Uh, it's the battle is really with ourselves, and we're tr- we're turning it. We don't. We're not making it into a battle. You can turn yourself into a battlefield, and as you know, we there's one part of the mind that seems to love to just find fault, the fault finding mind. That's all it knows how to do. No matter how your sitting is going, no matter how the reach is going, it has. <laughs> It has no sense of humor. It, in fact, the poor, the poor thing, all it knows how to do is find fault. That's all it knows how to do. And it's brilliant. And it can find ways of getting in there, criticizing the center, the food's no good, they're no good, you're no good, these yogis aren't... You know, it just goes... Okay. But we're not, we're not... We're avoiding turning ourselves into a battlefield through what? Through our old friend. Well, I don't know if it's an old friend. It is to me by now. Awareness. Okay, let's get to that. When um, the second, what the next week, when we when this, when we all returned in this class practice group in Cambridge, I was trying to where does this uh, uh, shamatha vipassana head? By the way, the third contemplation, which will be tomorrow morning after breakfast, you if you wish, you don't have to. For some people, it's quite natural. Some people just. You just drop the breath altogether and just sit in awareness, period. That's it. And that has quite a range of development or continuum of refinement until it becomes effortless. Then it's really what uh, we call choiceless awareness, where there's just awareness and there's no one doing it, which if you're really new to this practice, it might sound a little bit crazy. But uh, you should be so lucky to not be there. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. All right. <laughs> uh, so, hmm. I'm going to, a shorthand version. The practice is about enabling the mind to, to watch all of these conditions it's to move from what, we, what is called, in the language of this particular approach, it's to move from the conditioned to the unconditioned. What is being posited, until you really see it, it's just someone's theory, or it's just language. That means there's something that's unconditioned. I would say all religions are seeking that. Something that is ultimate, that is not created by human beings. That is, whether you call it God, or, the, or big self, or 
Buddha nature or Nibbana or whatever you want to call it, something that is the source, home. It's like the practice is a U-turn. It's like we've been going out. And part of what came out is, so I, I mentioned this and I drew him out and I, I said, even being blind is a condition. And he smiled and nodded, yes. It's a severe one. And many of us would not do, might not, you know, we have a lot to, a long way to go if we could handle it the way he did. I certainly, when I envisioned during our conversation, I told him, I envisioned myself as blind before I started the conversation, and I felt terrified. I can't imagine anything worse than not being able to see, for me. Someone else, it might be another sense. Uh, but it wasn't true. So there's a kind of outer blindness, which he had, and inner blindness, which we have. Uh, the outer blindness is a condition. Uh, there's also inner blindness in that we, the mind is producing conditions. A condition is something that's produced. It, it's an appearing. It appears and then it disappears. Like an air conditioner, it does something to the air so that it makes it cooler. So we've been conditioned. We were born into and we've, here we are. Combination of parents and education, life experience, you know. Uh, spiritual traditions are conditioning us. It's life. We need, it's part of life. We can't wish it away. Uh, it's civilization. It's, we've, we've cultivated something and put it... But if we don't understand it, it seems that it causes an enormous amount of suffering. In the extreme, it's called war. It's called... It, but at, at any rate, when you sit in meditation, let's just for the moment li limit it to that, and you sit with or without the breath as a support, as an anchor. Everything is coming and going. You can see it. Moods come and go. Thoughts come and go. Images come and go. The condition of the body keeps changing. Uh, at a certain point, you may get in touch with something which I like to call awareness. You have other words for it. At the beginning, it's synonymous with mindfulness. At a certain point, uh, perhaps we need another term. Uh, I don't care what it is, but for me, it's a, we'll make it awareness with a capital A. Uh, there's something that isn't conditioned, that seems to see all of this. So that, like Ajahn Chah, uh, who is a great Thai forest master, you say, uh, if your house is, is, is uh, destroyed by a flood, which is quite common, I gather, in, you know, in Thailand, he says, does your mind have to be destroyed by it? And of course not. Uh, so, what this gentleman in Cambridge did, he, his, his one condition was blindness. It's a condition of the body. Millions have had it and have it. And there's something that seems, it's not blind, it's not old, it's not of any particular ethnic group, religion, sex, age, color, size, shape, whatever you want to talk about, it just... And one tradition, uh, I believe it's a Tibetan tradition, they have a beautiful term for en enlightenment. They call it the great seeing. Uh, to me, enlightenment's the wrong term. Uh, it's not the wrong term, but it's not the best because the whole European culture, enlightenment, is really more an accumulation of magnificent knowledge and culture, which is wonderful. Uh, it's, the Buddha was awake, fully awake, so I think terms like awakened uh, a more, a closer to what we're talking about. 
and the, the great seeing is fully awake. It's also been called the great silence, capital G, capital S, because that same mind, it's also been called emptiness. You've heard that one for sure. Empty of what? There's no attachment to me or mine. There's just, and I'm not going to name it, well, I have awareness. Now, at a certain point, you realize that, and you realize everything else is a condition. It comes and goes, and that's the true refuge. If you take refuge in the Buddha, first of all, if it's in this gentleman sitting over here, you're in trouble. <laughs> well, if you, if you believe something, because sometimes I saw villages in, Tha- in Thailand and in Korea, too, uh, tears, you know, they just really have such sincere hearts about what that represents. Or I don't know what it is. It's like prayer. And fine, I just, I, to me, I, I know it's a statue. Sometimes beautifully done, some not so beautifully done. Uh, you could, you, can't, you can't, can you take refuge in any of the conditions? For example, what came out of the discussion is that there are plenty of people, most, who have perfect eyesight, have, are wealthy, have a beautiful home, have perfect partners, sparkling children who graduate at the top of their class and all go to, you know, to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and Stanford, sorry for West Coast people. And, and they're miserable. And they have three motorboats. And they, so it's not that those things are bad. It's just apparent, they're conditions. If that's where you're taking refuge, a refugee is somebody who's trying to get someplace safe. We're the, the only, the safest place in the Buddhist teaching, you don't have to agree with this, it's up to you, is awareness. Because awareness finally doesn't get old. It doesn't get sick. It, it, let's say you, you say, I feel confused. Awareness is never confused. Uh, if you identify with the confusion, then you make confusion, and you are confused. But if you're not confused by confusion, meaning you know it's a mind state, the confused mind, that's all it knows how to do. I don't know, maybe, should I, maybe, why should I, if I do this, I'll get, no, I better do that, and it's gone. Awareness just sees it all. Okay, as you, if you continue to do this stuff, improving our ability to develop this quality, and as the mind gets clearer, it also is much more discerning about telling what is skillful or wise and what isn't. We have to do the best we can right now. You can't wait to be perfect, but as the mind gets clearer, it's, life becomes a little easier because there are fewer choices. That's to an American, and it sounds awful. <laughs> when there are a huge number of choices, often it means the mind's confused. It doesn't know what to do. When the mind is clear, often things are, are pretty obvious. What to do, what not to do, etc. Uh, so the direction of this practice is to come to the unconditioned. Now, I'm using that term to be synonymous with, with awareness and emptiness and silence. Now, if you're new to this, it might sound as if, well, why would I want that? It sounds like a prefrontal lobotomy, you know, or amnesia. I mean, just what, you're just nobody? You should be so lucky to be a nobody. Well, okay, I'll, we'll finish with a Jewish humor. All right, but that... <laughs> um, because uh, you'll see that everything else comes and goes, and you can't rely on it. Not really. But it doesn't mean it's worthless. Have a nice home. Have nice clothes. 
have a good partner, etc. Eat healthy food. No one's putting that down. It's the fact that we don't know how to relate to that and put it in perspective. But what makes this spiritual or religious is it is saying there is something sacred in life, not necessarily organized religion. In fact, a lot of what is called organized religion is not religious at all. It seems it's more political power and cause a huge amount of suffering in the world. And yet, is there something sacred in life? I think so. And maybe all of us who are here, we know so. And it's called different things. That's, the names are, it's nameless. The Buddha, when he talked about this original mind, all he said was, it, it is originally luminous. That's enough for me. Or it's, it's luminous. Can you taste it? Can ordinary people like ourselves taste it? Yes. But in order to do that, we have to unlearn this. Uh, we're so entangled with all of our mental and emotional productions. We identify with them. We create identities out of them. Self. Now, probably most, if not all of you know, that the finally, finally the root cause of suffering in the Buddhist teaching is attachment to me and mine. We tend to turn everything into so many things into me or mine or not mine. And the most subtle of all are these mental productions. We create images, conclusions about ourselves and mind, notions. As one uh, text put it, liberation is freedom from all notions. In other words, you drop all the notions about yourself because none of them are really right. You conclude, I'm really a wonderful person. It's an idea. It's an image. It's a conclusion. And it passes. And then suddenly, no, I'm not. I'm a jerk. Well, wait a minute. I thought you were a wonderful person. Well, which one is the real you? Well, if the real me, I don't know. Where's, where's the real you? you know? uh, so at a certain point, if you start to see, it actually is the funniest show in town. Watch your mind. It's funnier than any sitcom. There's no comparison reassuring itself, tearing itself down, boasting to it all day long. You know, just, I'm wonderful, I'm awful, I'm stupid, no, I'm brilliant. I, you know, you're going to tell your boss off for the last 15 years? Do it already. You know, okay. So finally, that's the last one to go, is to see through that, that all these notions about who you are are just notions. That's what they are. Uh, when... Bodhidharma, who, according to, I don't know how much of this is history and, and mythology, brought the uh, Dharma to China. Uh, he brought it to China, and the emperor heard that this uh, truly awakened yogi came from India to bring authentic teachings to China. And he questioned him. And he said... Um, I've uh, done all these wonderful things for the monks. Uh, I've gotten this, I've gotten that. And he was just boasting about how much he'd done. And he said, how much merit do I get? And Bodhidharma said, none. What? He said, okay, can you tell me something about the holy Dharma? And he said, nothing holy, just vast emptiness. And the emperor was getting annoyed. And finally he said, who is it that that's, to- that's saying these things. And Bodhidharma, the translation I like, said, I have no idea. Now, does that mean he's lost, confused, has amnesia? He means he knows he's not an idea. All that, when you watch your mind, you can see your mind is telling you who you are. 
and we, like jerks, believe it. And then we're stuck with ourselves that we've fabricated. Then we have to liberate ourselves from the prison we created. And then you have to spend your hard-earned bucks to places like this, therapists who charge an arm and a leg, uh, and then fetch to everyone in your life. How about if we just stop doing that? This place would go broke. But there's no worry. No worry at all. Okay, let me end off. This, what was it, Barnum and Bailey? A sucker is born every day. Yeah. Okay. Uh, some of you know this one, but I love it. I think it captures something. It's the high holidays in the synagogue, and the rabbi is decked out in all of his finery, all of his beautiful robes, and the gabbai, another official in the synagogue. He's also decked out in, in beautiful robes. And the chanting stops, and uh, the rabbi said, is speaking to the... Uh, to, 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 the, to everyone, he says, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm an absolute zero. And the congregation is moved to tears. What a wonderful rabbi we have. Look how humble he is. He's nobody, he's a zero, he's nothing. Then the gabbai, also dressed beautifully, comes in and he says it. He says, me too, I'm nothing, I'm a zero, I'm absolutely no one. And they say, whoa. Are we fortunate to have a gabbai who is like that as well? Then the janitor is standing in the back with overalls and a mop. And he says, I'm nothing, I'm no one, I'm nobody. And the rab- rabbi, rather irate, says, look who thinks he's a nobody. <laughs> okay. It's, I'm a Jew, I can make jokes about myself. <laughs> Don't start him with the racism car, I'm tired of hearing it. I can get away with it. Not only that, Jews made this joke up. <laughs> God's sakes. Okay. Can we have a few moments of silence? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. I'd like to dedicate this talk to Ken. It's his first name. Uh, In the hope, well, it's not just a hope. Perhaps physical blindness is not curable, at least not now. But inner blindness apparently is. So let's, let's heal ourselves. Let's have a good rest of the retreat and practice together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.